This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author and educator Nisi Shaw discusses her debut novel, Everfair. Then PW senior writer Andrew Albanese previews the Frankfurt Book Fair. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Rose, do you want to do fiction first, or should I jump into the nonfiction? I'm happy to talk about fiction. There's some exciting stuff happening. We have a new okay. number one, uh, which is Home Great. by Harlan Coben. And uh, this is the 11th thriller in his series featuring sports agent Myron Bolotar. Not your typical thriller protagonist, but Coben makes it work. And uh, we say that this is an action-packed thriller that blends family drama with a twisty plot. Uh, It's about uh, two six-year-old boys who are abducted and a ransom is dropped off but not retrieved. And their parents spend a decade without any idea where their children are. So there's uh, a lot of really deep personal stuff going on there. And uh, naturally, our protagonist, Myron, investigates with the help of his best friend. And uh, the story ends with a revelation that we say few, if any, readers will anticipate. And this page turner is sure to please Coben's many fans. And he's doing a five-city tour to support the book. Uh, and that's uh, at number one, uh, very firmly on top, over 33,000 copies sold, which is almost as much as the book in the number two spot. Wow. So, oh, fantastic. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's serious stuff. And uh, our next debut on the list is all the way down at number nine, uh, The Kept Woman by Karen Slaughter. We say this is an exciting, if flawed, novel. Uh, it's the sixth novel starring Will Trent and Dr. Sarah Linton. And uh, it's a, a thriller. This one has a, a murder at the center of the story. Uh, in this case, the murder of a retired Atlanta cop, uh, who had been known to take some bribes. And uh, the case becomes almost too large for a slaughter to contain, uh, which could explain, our review says, her choice to rely on an awkward extended flashback sequence. But she mostly manages to wrangle this installment into an intense look at the nature of loss and control and how love can taint them both. So that sounds pretty intense. Uh, number 11 on the hardcover fiction list, uh, something a little different. Uh, this is Thrice the Brinded Cat Hath Mewed by Alan Bradley, uh, the lively eighth book in the Flavia de Luce uh, series. She's a chemist and a detective and uh, not even yet a teenager. Uh, she's a, a fascinating protagonist. And uh, she's been dishonorably discharged from her academy in Canada and has headed back to her crumbling family estate in England. Uh, and, uh, of course, you know, she stumbles on a mystery and has to investigate. Um, oh. we, we say that uh, she can irritate, but Flavia is a winner and a mix of sparky irreverence and wrathful propriety who evades the preciousness endemic to the species of child detectives. Mm. So. That's uh, That sounds like a lot of fun. And uh, at number 13, uh, we have The Undoing of St. Sylvanus by Beth Moore. This is a debut novel, um, but she is well-known to some readers because she's the best-selling author of Bible studies and faith-based leadership guides and self-help books. Uh, mm. She's got a down-home Southern style, and readers will be pleased to find it in this tale set in New Orleans, where a former church is now an apartment building named St. Sylvanus, the St. Sylvanus of the title. 
And uh, in this case, there's a funeral and it draws people together who maybe would rather not see one another and uh, tensions rise. And the novel, we say, is not without flaws. It has slow pacing, overuse of colloquialism, and odd leaps back to the early days. But it remains endearing and entertaining to the end. And uh, obviously, she's got a ton of fans of her nonfiction, and they will flock to this first work of fiction. Though our review says whether they'll be willing to read the whole long thing is less clear. It's 460 pages. So we'll see. Yeah, sure. And uh, at number 20 and 21, we have uh, a science fiction novel and a fantasy novel. Uh, always nice to see those on the list. And in particular, at number 20, uh, we have a work of science fiction in translation, which does not happen on the bestseller list every day. Uh, in fact, translated works in general don't tend to hit the hardcover fiction bestseller list all that often. So this is very exciting. Uh, the book is Death's End. It's by Cixin Liu, and uh, it's translated from the Chinese by Ken Liu, who uh, was our guest on the radio show not so long ago. This is the conclusion to the Three Body Trilogy, uh, which was a mega, super-duper bestseller in China, where science fiction is extremely popular. Uh, and uh, it's really exciting to see it doing so well here in the U.S. The first book in the trilogy won a Hugo Award, um, which, again, is a big deal for a work of translated fiction. And uh, very, very exciting to uh, see this getting so much attention, so much press. The book itself is not perfect. Um, we say that it's a, a little gloomy and it's an ambitious millennia spanning space opera with enough ideas for a dozen books. And the well thought out concepts are more memorable than the characters. Uh, we see the time scale, which extends uh, for you know, quite a long time, thousands of years beyond the beginning of the series, uh, makes it a little hard to engage emotionally. But there are emotionally moving moments that ground the intriguing speculations about science and human nature. So there's a lot going on there. I remember when we spoke with Ken Liu about, uh, you know, when we had him on the show, we talked about, he mentioned, uh, his, his translation and the importance he, he thought of having works from, uh, the, you know, Chinese translated here. And so it is, as you said, really good to see this. Number 20 on the hardcover, uh, fiction list. I mean, it's, yeah. it's great. And yeah. um, not only that, but uh, he's got some translated short fiction that's also making waves. Another Hugo Award this year went to right. a short story that he translated, and um, he's got a wow. collection or an anthology of uh, Chinese science, science fiction stories that he's translated that's coming out this fall from Tor Books, um, which is also the publisher of the Cixin Liu stories or novels. So, um, you know, lots of lots of exciting stuff happening there, and I really. Hope that it's a trend. No, yeah, it's great. And at number 21, we have Magic Binds. Uh, this is the ninth book in the Kate Daniels uh, urban fantasy series by Ilona Andrews. We don't have a review of it, unfortunately, um, but uh, those who've been following the series know that it's set in Atlanta, Georgia, um, that's sort of infested with magic. So magic comes in waves, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes technology works, and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, Kate Daniels is a mercenary caught in the midst of all of this and making her living by doing some cleanup work. And uh, in, in this book, I think this is on the bestseller list because it's got a wedding in it. And who doesn't love those? But uh, <laughs> this is this is a cursed wedding. Um, Kate has been told that if she marries the man that she loves, Atlanta will burn to the ground and she will lose her beloved forever. So um, – brave of them to go ahead with that wedding anyway, but they uh, tend to have ways around even the most daunting situation. So this is a big one for the fans. They've been cheering on this relationship for several books. I think they'll be very excited to see what happens when Kate and her beloved, the former Beast Lord, Curran Lenart, finally get to the altar. Oh, fantastic. Uh, so I just wanted to mention a couple of other books that didn't quite make it onto the uh, list for the magazine, but are on our uh, long list of the, the 50 best-selling books. Number 32, The Wonder by Emma Donahue. We gave it a starred review. And uh, not only that, it was just announced that it's on the short list for Canada's Giller Prize. 
Um, and uh, this is, uh, we say she demonstrates her versatility by dabbling in a wide range of literary styles in her latest novel. And also Jacqueline Woodson's Another Brooklyn is on the long list again after having dropped off of it. And I suspect it got a boost from her appearance at the Brooklyn Book Fair. Uh, so uh, right. I was very excited to see that getting a, a little bit of a jump after we had such a lovely conversation a few weeks ago. That's right. And I was at the uh, Brooklyn Book Fair when she uh, at the uh, opening reception when she gave a talk. So it was uh, it, I, I'm, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's what gave her yeah, gave the book a boost. So what's going on in nonfiction? So uh, our top debut is number four. It's called Atlas Obscura, an explorer's guide to the world's hidden wonders by Joshua Four, Dylan Thuris, and Alia Morton. And what's kind of interesting about this book is this came out of a website, uh, which was founded in 2009. It has nearly 600,000 Facebook fans. And uh, it, this is really just, just like kind of a guide to over 700 of the strangest and most curious places in the world. So it's it's um, it's pretty cool that it's uh, at number four. So that's I'm, our, our I'm top a, one. I'm a huge fan of the Atlas Obscura site huge fan. They do really interesting stuff. They dig up just uh, these great little tidbits about the world that make you feel like you're traveling while you're sitting in your living room. So uh, it's it's terrific. I'm very glad to see their book doing so well. That's excellent. I'm actually going to get on it right after we we finish here. So uh, then we've got at number five, Designing Your Life, How to Build a Well-Lived, Joyful Life by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans. Uh, We say here to Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, Burnett and Evans, present an empowering book based on their popular class of the same name at Stanford University. Uh, this, the center of the philosophy is the, basically the idea that people need a process or a design, as it were, to, to make any sort of significant life change. Uh, in the end, we, we say with useful fact-finding exercises and empathetic tone and sensible advice, the book will easily earn a place among career-finding Classic. So this could be a new way of looking, of of looking into changing a career and you know learning how to find it, find a new path. At number eight, we have the seasoned life, food, family, faith, and the joy of eating well by Aisha Curry, and uh, this is uh, a, a family-centric cookbook from a home chef, Aisha Curry, who has appeared on various shows, food shows, and um, you know there's some recipes for cast iron biscuits to smoked salmon scramble. So this is kind of interesting to see a um, this is the first cookbook and I think in a little while that we've seen on here and and again this is just kind of looking at uh, you know family you know eating with the family so something uh, uh, accessible uh, with uh, it seems you know ingredients that are easy to find and um, not too time consuming to put together uh, for the you know for the family dinner. And the last one I'm going to talk about is at number nine, uh, The Hero of the Empire, The Boer War, and a Daring Escape in the Making of Winston Churchill by Candace Millard. Millard, who's the author of Destiny of the Republic, takes a relatively minor episode in the life of Winston Churchill, uh, which is basically his escape from prison during the Boer War, and makes hay with it, we say, painting young Churchill as a brilliant soldier, talent, talented raconteur, and a politician in waiting. We say not even some late attempt to the wider world on Churchill can save the book from its hagiographic bent, unfortunately. Oh, dear. Yes, exactly. So that's what we have on the nonfiction. All right. Well, uh, definitely uh, slowing down a little bit after the first crush of September books, um, but uh, still plenty of fall blockbusters yet to come, I'm sure. Exactly. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Nisi Shaw tells us how she brought steampunk to the Belgian Congo. We'll be right back. I'm Ed Yong, author of I Contain Multitudes, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Nisi Shaw on the line. Her new book is Everfair. Hi, Nisi. So glad you could join us. I'm so glad to be here. So Everfair is your first novel. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, it is basically about a country called Everfair. Uh, Not about the people, but about the country. And it starts off with a bunch of British socialists 
uh, and African-American missionaries buying land from Leopold, who personally owned, according to him, parts of the African continent. They buy the land, they set up this utopian socialist community, and things go from there. So in our starred review of the book, we said that uh, you take readers to this alternate earth where the inhumane history of the Belgian Congo is brilliantly rewritten when Africa's indigenous populations learn about steam power. So tell us how you are playing with the steampunk aesthetic, the steampunk genre in this book. Well, I actually didn't write that, and I have to say that there's a little bit more going on than steam technology. Uh, there's some biotechnology going on. With the steampunk aesthetic, I, I cheated a little bit, and in that part of Africa, there were natural uh, nuclear reactors in the ground. And I just made them last maybe a million years longer than they normally did. So we use those as um, the way that you can actually have steam power. Uh, you have nuclear-fueled uh, generators running steam. And so uh, then we have dirigibles, but the dirigibles are called air canoes, and their balloons are made out of rubberized bark cloth, and there are guns that fire blades that were uh, throwing, based on the throwing blades of the indigenous region. Um, there's poisoned blades in these shanguns, they're called, and so on and so forth. So that sounds incredibly exciting. Uh, did you have a ton of fun writing this book? It sounds like it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. It was so much fun flying in the face of certain conventions and um, making people survive and survive and thrive that in our timeline, actually, millions were killed. So in this one, they are not killed and they're on top. So tell us more about your, uh, your African-American protagonist, Thomas Jefferson Wilson. Thomas Jefferson Wilson is based on a character, a historical figure that I learned about when I read King Leopold's Ghost, which is an awesome book that everyone should read about what actually happened in the Congo under King Leopold's reign. Uh, Thomas Jefferson Wilson is very closely modeled on George Washington Williams, who was a Civil War veteran and a congressman and a minister, and he traveled to the Congo during the time that it was so, the so-called free state under Leopold and was horrified by what he saw, wrote a famous open letter to King Leopold, and then mysteriously died. So in my version, he doesn't die. He lives to the ripe old age of 80, has several wives, um, sets fashions, and um, converts to paganism. So how, how does Thomas uh, Jefferson Wilson, how did he end up in the Belgian Congo? You know, there were a lot of people who were looking toward the African continent as a home for people who could not... Uh, Face living in the United States after the horrors of slavery. So um, there was uh, Sierra Leone, uh, there was Liberia, and there were a bunch of other experiments. So that's basically how he wound up on that continent. And then um, Leopold put about the rumor that he was doing wonderful things and emancipating people and had this model country going. So, of course, uh, Williams was in investigating this, and what he found made his blood run cold. Millions of people dying from horrible treatment. So I, I just want to step back just for a moment. You know, I'm, I'm always happy when uh, Rose uh, uh, has uh, authors who write about uh, 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 steampunk on because it's something that's new to me. So if you could just describe just physically what 
uh, the Belgian Congo looks like at this time in the steampunk, steampunk time? And what might be different? Well, it, the novel takes place over a 30-year period. So there's a lot of development going on in the steampunk aesthetic, in steampunk tools and machines. By the end, the capital of Everfair, Kisangani, uh, has clockwork swings that cross um, low streets where the rain collects. There are uh, dirigibles with um, sort of gimbaled uh, landing craft. There are elevators. There are... Um, bicycles, um, which are sort of like motorcycles, steam-driven bicycles that carry around uh, carriages and carts. They tow them. So it is quite different. People use fans as hats. Uh, you have to read it. It's really good, and I'm really hoping that there will be a lot of cosplay costumes uh, based on the different wares, wearing patterns that you have. Um, some people who are on the ground are going to be wearing less, and then some people who are spending more time up in the air where it's cooler are wearing more, and so on and so forth. I love the idea of uh, cosplay for this because uh, we all know there's a there's a dearth of cosplay opportunities for people of color, and so um, it's wonderful to have uh, an entire book uh, set in this section of Africa with quite a mingling of people uh, and a lot of opportunities on that front, on the on the visual front and on the representation front. Yes. Um- one of the things that I found out when I was doing research for the book was that the people uh, who were indigenous to this area uh, were famed across the continent for their metalwork. So I really didn't have to stretch very far to have them making, you know, throwing knives and uh, clockwork-driven prosthetic arms and that sort of thing. It was already there, just waiting to be developed. Mm. So, uh, could you tell a little bit? Tell us a little bit about the uh, the Great Fabian Society. Uh, the Fabians were a gradualist socialist movement that really existed in 19th century Britain. Uh, some of the people that I really admire were founders, including George Bernard Shaw, H. G. Wells, and a children's author that I just adore E. Nesbitt, Edith Nesbitt. She and her husband, Hubert Bland, were founders of the Fabian Society. And they did not want violent confrontations, but they did want a socialist utopia, which they thought they could get by just being nice to people a lot. Wait, wait, Edith Nesbitt, the children's book author? Yes, she was a Fabian wow. socialist. Yes, and. <laughs> I had no idea. That's uh, I'm going to go and try and reconcile that with her books now because I don't remember reading her children's books and thinking these have secret socialist messages in them. Well, they are there, but again, the Fabians were gradualists. They were not all in your face. But if you look uh, particularly at The Enchanted Castle by Nesbitt, she uh, has her typical middle-class protagonist, but she also has one of the protagonists as the daughter of the castle's housekeeper, which was fairly revolutionary for the time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that's that's amazing. And I'm just, I'm going to go reread all those books now, but I'm getting off us off track. I'm sorry. That just, uh, that, that grabbed me. So how do you integrate, uh, the, the Fabian society into your book? Um, they're, they're the ones going off and trying to really make that utopia happen in the Congo. Yes. Uh, again, in our timeline, what really happened was they got an anonymous donation of a lot of money and they used that to set up the London School of Economics. So all I did was say, well, you know, maybe they use that money to buy some land from Leopold. And 
Leopold was only in it for the money. So I can imagine him accepting the money and saying, sure, I'll do this rather than going through the whole arduous process of forcing people to harvest rubber for me. Just give me the money. Uh, in my version, Leopold thinks that he's being very canny because he sells a piece of land that is landlocked. There's no access to the ocean, so no trade routes. But of course, there are dirigibles. Hello, air canoes. So these can sail and uh, carry goods and do trade with Europe and with the rest of Africa and the Middle East without access to waterways. Oh, it's pretty fascinating. <laughs> so uh, tell us about the relationship between King Leopold and um, uh, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson Wilson. And how did they come to this uh, agreement where they're, where they're you know, kind of creating Everfair? Uh, actually, um, it was, um, in my version, the initial overtures were made by the Fabian Socialists. And then the Fabian Socialists, uh, were in contact with Wilson, who then brought in several other um, evangelists and missionaries. Uh, what happens is that Jackie Owen, who's modeled a bit on H.G. Wells and a bit on George Bernard Shaw, goes to a speech that Williams slash Wilson gives and is moved by what he sees as a possibility um, I won't give everything away there, but that is mm. basically how it works. And then Hubert Bland is the contact. Um, Nesbitt's husband is is the contact with Leopold in this case. And who are some of the other significant characters? You haven't talked so much about women yet, but I'm sure there are plenty of them playing significant roles. Oh, yes. Um I couldn't model all my characters on historical figures because uh, so much of the Congo's history has been erased. But arguably the main character is Lisette Tutumier, who is based on the French author, mixed-race author, Colette, who is one of my Mm -hmm. idols again. So Lisette Tutumier is modeled on Colette. Josina, the favorite of King Mwenda. King Mwenda essentially ruled the land that, uh, that Leopold claimed as his own. Um, and his favorite queen, Josina, is, uh, modeled on Maria Fonseca, who was also mixed race, um, the granddaughter of a Portuguese trader. Uh, let's see, who else? Well, um, Nesbitt herself is, um, in, in my version, I, I talk a a lot about, uh, Daisy, who is the country's poet, who's very much involved in politics. And also in a rather torrid triangle, love triangle between the George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells figure and Lisette. And, yeah, her husband is involved, too. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Nisi Shaw, the author of Everfair, who's giving us some amazing insight into how she drew on history to develop her alternate history of utopian socialists in the Belgian Congo. And uh, how did you envision your setting changing over the decades? You said that it, um, this takes place over about 30 years. So it starts in the Victorian era and then um, heads all the way into World War One. Well, one of the things that happens is that um, people find each other um, helpful and not so helpful. 
there are several wars, and at at the end, the uh, the people find a way to resolve their differences without war, which I really hope that that happens with a lot of other people. Um, so they start out um, as very separate groups. They uh, there are the um, U- utopian settlers, the uh, African Americans, and the Europeans and British. And then there are the indigenes. So there are basically three groups. And then um, there's a fourth group that I found out about as I was doing research. Did you know there's a strong Chinese cultural influence in that part of the world? I did did not not. know. No, no. Uh, What happened was that Leopold hired a bunch of Chinese railroad workers, people who actually built a railroad um, he wanted them to build a railroad between um, the part of his territory that was adjacent to the ocean and then the part of the Congo River that was navigable. So he hired a bunch of Chinese people, and at one point they j- just basically said to each other, you know, this is really no good. I'm not going to have anything more to do with this. Which way is east? Oh, that way? Okay, let's go. And they all dropped their tools, and they headed off into the bush. And they did not make it back to China, but they did um, mingle with the uh, Congolese indigenous people there and left a great legacy of Chinese culture. So... So those people are there, too, and there are all these disparate groups at the beginning. Um, they become more mingled over the course of fighting off Leopold, and also um, become more mingled as they fight against, um, so they take the side of the Germans in World War One. But then, mm. at a certain point, King Wenda says, um, you know what, you guys can go now. <laughs> And that's when there's the outbreak of a third sort of civil war, which is, as I say, resolved in a non-military manner. So there's there's that sort of progression uh, from quite disparate to not so disparate, but still tired of each other groups. I, I want to ask, this is all so fascinating and how you brought in history into, I mean, how many, all these historic elements into your into your novel, how did you come up with the with the idea for this book? I mean, what what was that first kernel, and then how did you develop it? Well, the first kernel was um, I don't know. I swear I wasn't drunk, <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was on a panel at uh, World Fantasy in two thousand nine. It must have been, and I was trying to figure out what I hated about steampunk because I obviously hated it. And yet I didn't know I hadn't analyzed why. Um, and what I came up with was that it, it was far too supportive of imperialism. So I proclaimed in front of a room full of hundreds of people that I was going to address this by writing a novel that was, set in the heart of the, one of the worst colonialist and imperialist disasters in history. Uh, just because it was so nasty, I wanted to get into it. Cool. And um, the only <laughs> then I had to do it, right? The only thing that I could think of that would work was um, I had read a little bit about Fordlandia, which was uh, not utopian, a commercial uh, community set up in Brazil, I believe it was, somewhere in South America, um, to raise rubber. Henry Ford, the automaker, bought a bunch of land and said, oh, we're going to have a community that makes that raises rubber trees. I thought that, you know, because I knew about the British Fabian socialists, that maybe they could do it and do it for social justice reasons. Wow. Uh, 
that's I mean, that's really it's really fascinating. How what was your process for writing the book? And and it's interesting to me to say that how much you you dislike uh, uh, steampunk, but uh, but it was exactly that that set you on this on this course. Um, what what was the writing process like? Oh, it was feverish. <laughs> um, it, it took six years. Um, it was very immersive. I, I spent a lot of time poring over maps and listening to music and um, looking at photographs. Um, as I was writing, I'm the kind of person who writes while they research. So I didn't, you know, say, I will research this week and then I will write next week. No, it was minute to minute. Um, when I write, I, I pray that I get things right. Um, I try to get as many sensory cues going that will immerse me in that, in that environment that I'm trying to depict as, as possible. I'm not sure uh, what else to tell you. Um, there was someone that I that I invited to my one of the places that I wrote a retreat, and she looked at my setup, at the photos that I'd laid out, and the map, and the incense, and the candles, and she said, "You have a very developed writing process," which I thought was very. Um, diplomatic of her. <laughs> well, you, Rose and I have interviewed many people. We've asked the question, especially with uh, books of history or, or novels that have obviously you know, needed, you know, required uh, uh, research. And most people say that uh, they do the research first and then the writing. And I think you're the first, unless I'm mistaken, who said that you write it, uh, you research as you write. So, so therefore you have a character who's doing something, uh, uh, such as, uh, and, um, maybe Leopold, or you have an action and you're like, wait a minute, I should research that just to see what was the next step. I would sort of know what they're, where they were headed, but not what the road felt like under their feet, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I did have some moments where, like with, uh, discovering about the Macau railway builders, that, that changed the entire course of the book. Um, it added a, a couple of major characters. But um, generally, it was just like, well, are there street lights in Baltimore? And um, what does what does rubber look like before it's uh, vulcanized? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Got it. So you also co-wrote a book called Writing the Other, um, which is about how to write about characters whose backgrounds are different from the author's background, uh, which has become this very important and well-known work in the industry. Uh, did you expect that when you wrote that with Cynthia Ward? I certainly did not. I did not. I was uh, constantly, I'm still uh, amazed by the fact that people take it seriously and, you know, I, I understand that it's um, the practical approach of having people do exercises is novel one that people would much rather opinionate and bloviate about stuff, but I didn't expect it to take off like that. No. <laughs> and how has that um, shaped your career? I'm actually surprised that it's taken you this long to write a novel. And I was wondering if part of that is because you've been caught up in being or being seen as an educator. No, actually, I have written three other novels. Three other novels. This is just the first one to get published. Ah. Um, and I had actually finished all three novels before I began this one. Uh, so why weren't they published earlier? Well, maybe there's a little weird, you know? <laughs> uh, there's a, a middle years one called Speculation. There's a YA one called La Verde. And there's uh, an adult one called The Blazing World. Yeah, maybe I do stuff in novels that you can only get away with in short stories. Sure. Tell a little bit about, I, I know Rose is familiar with writing the other, but could you tell us a little bit about that book? 
So uh, a little more about writing the other. Uh, the premise is that there are two things that need to happen to increase representation in the field. One is uh, the very important part of getting more marginalized voices to speak for themselves. And that is not what writing the other is about. Writing the other is about the second half of that issue, which is that we want to have representation no matter whose voice is doing the speaking. So writing the other uh, is expressly about how to create characters whose demographics differ from your own in ways that this culture deems significant. For instance, uh, if you're a black uh, woman uh, of 60 years old, uh, bisexual, cis, such as myself, how do you write about someone who is a teenager, Chinese, male, heterosexual, um, which is one of the characters in Everfair Kink? So um, there, there are actual techniques that you can use to make that possible and to make it better. And that's what writing the other is about. So were you using those techniques uh, sort of on yourself or with yourself uh, as you were working on Everfair? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I was, of course, terrified the whole time I was writing just about everybody but Lisette. Uh, Lisette is the closest to me demographically, um, although not always age-wise, but by the end of the book, she is pretty close. Um, so, yeah, all of all of the time I was uh, using those techniques and hoping that they would help. <laughs> so are you working on any projects now? Oh, so many. <laughs> um <laughs> One thing that I'm working on, actually, is um, I finished one short story and I'm about to start another short story that are sort of working as pilot episodes for another novel set uh, in the world of Everfair, basically a sequel. Uh, the first one actually has sold to an an anthology called Sun Vault. The first one is called The Colors of Money, and it takes place on Zanzibar, and um, there are a couple of characters there that were also in Everfair, and it takes place about three months after Everfair closes. And the next one um, that I'll be starting on tomorrow, I have no title for it yet, but I know that it takes place in Alexandria, and that it again involves a brother-sister pair of characters that were part of Everfair. Well, I think our listeners are going to be very excited to know that you're working on a sequel because I've heard nothing but good buzz about this book, including our starred review. There's been some really nice things said about this book. I'm happy about that. My mom likes it. Oh, well, that's the most important thing. <laughs> We've been talking with Nisi Shaw, and you can find her book, Ever Fair, in stores right now. Nisi, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome, Rose. I was very happy to do this. I'm glad that it worked out. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese tells us what's on tap for the Frankfurt Book Fair, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Woodson, author of Another Brooklyn, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us all about the upcoming Frankfurt Book Fair. Hi, Andrew. Hey, Rose. Hello, Mark. Hello. Always good to have you here. So um, tell us a little bit about what has you most excited in the run-up to Frankfurt. What has me most excited in the run-up to Frankfurt? Um, I think this is a pretty... This is going to be sort of a make or break year, I think, for Frankfurt. I wouldn't say make or break necessarily, but we'll put it this way. Last year in 2015, uh, they had a two 
2.3% uptick in attendance. Now, many people know that book fairs are supposed to have gone the way of the printed book, right? It's supposed to be dead already. Right. Um, but that really has not happened. And a lot of that owes to, uh, A, the Frankfurt Book Fair very aggressively inviting new cohorts to participate in the Frankfurt Book Fair, and in some cases, subsidizing those people to attend. Um, so this year, I think we're going to get a sense of uh, how those cohorts that they've invited into the Frankfurt Book Fair, whether it be film or TV or gamers, do when they're not being subsidized. I mm. get the feeling that some of those subsidies are starting to dry up, that they're no longer being subsidized. And so we will see if Frankfurt attendance uh, stays, goes up, continues to rise, or if it uh, sort of starts to level off a little. So tell us a little bit more about those changes, just to refresh our memories from last year. Sure. You know, Frankfurt, I think, stands as a great example to the industry at large, because back when the internet started hitting, Frankfurt did not stand still and stamp its feet and say, you know, we're a book fair, damn it, we're going to be a book fair. Um, they started inviting in uh, pretty much every other content in industry and sort of pointing out to the industry that it's all one big circle. It's all stories. It's all rights. You people should be talking to one another. So Frankfurt brought in uh, a bunch of different, you know, sort of players in the content industry. They brought in gamers. They brought in film and TV. Uh, there was a conference they launched called Story Drive that, that brought in uh, different parts of the creative universe from all over the world for a little conference within the conference there. And this year, uh, they're expanding once again. They're bringing in the fine arts world. Uh, they have a new platform called Arts Plus. And in addition to a really good one-day program, uh, that's going to sort of bring the art world into Frankfurt with a, uh, a keynote conversation with uh, British artist David Hockney. Um, they've also got about two 2,200 square feet of space that's just going to uh, sort of sort of showcase and highlight different tools that are now being used to create art. And I think that's important for publishers to see. It's no longer, I think, just about uh, ink on a page or, or pixels on a reader. Uh, in the future, we're going to be about virtual reality and augmented reality and all of these different new tools that creators have at their disposal eventually are going to start, you know, yielding some fruit. So, uh, so how many times have you been to Frankfurt now? <laughs> this seems like, geez, I lose count. <laughs> I, this is probably my, I think probably my 10th year. Wow. So, I mean, you're, you're setting out there, is it next week? Uh, no, actually it's not until it's a, it's a week later this week or this yeah. year. Uh, the fair starts on the 16th of October. Excuse me. I leave on the 16th of October. The fair starts on the 18th. And, uh, I mean, we, we, we've always talked about in Frankfurt, you know, the, the dearth of, of restaurants and, and activities to do outside. Is any of that changing in Frankfurt? I, you know, for the first few years that I was in Frankfurt, I was not terribly happy to be there. Frankfurt is not, some may say, the greatest tourist attraction, the greatest city in Germany mm -hmm. to visit. But I have to tell you, one day... Uh, I was left in Frankfurt. From, I had to get my Saturday stay, so my airfare was in $2,000. So I had an entirely free day in Frankfurt, and I threw a backpack on, and I started hiking the city. And I will tell you that I've fallen in love with the city of Frankfurt. Really? Um, yeah, there's some questionable architecture, I think, still left in that city. <laughs> but there are parts of the city that are just absolutely beautiful. The people are lovely. Um, I, the German people are terrific in the sense that you, you, I – travel to France quite a bit too. And when I try to speak French, they speak English to me. Um, when I try to speak a little bit of German in Germany, they really are interested in helping me out. And like, mm -hmm. you know, they're very inclusive that way. So I, I've enjoyed Germany a great deal. There are great restaurants in Germany because they come from all over Europe. Right. Uh, there's a couple of great Italian restaurants that we found. There's no shortage of good beer. Um, and, you know, Frankfurt is a train ride away from some other great attractions like Heidelberg and, right. and play lots of castles in Heidelberg that are very interesting to see. So, you know, I can – anybody who's on the fence about whether or not Frankfurt is a good destination, I can tell you, put a little effort into discovering it and it is worth it. It is truly a really great city. All right. Hear that out there, listeners, all of you going to Frankfurt this year. <laughs> yeah, find, find Andrew and he'll be here. Your tour guide. Happy, happy to take some people around. And so with the inclusion of the, the, of the arts – segment. Are, are they hoping to bring in, um, is it an expansion of publishing and, and publishing minds? Or are they hoping to bring in, uh, you know, artists and to, to, to maybe change or augment the conversation as to what, as you were saying, a, a book is or what 
art is? Or- well, I think it's both. You know, I would say it's an expansion. I would say it's more a convergence. Um, I think if Frankfurt wants to grow, if it wants to, it will always be a book fair, first and foremost. Right. You know, it started as a book fair, but our very definition of what a book is, is starting to change right. as well. And I, I think what Frankfurt is seeing is that... Um, it's a big circle that everybody plays in the same, you know, sandbox here. It's, it's all about, uh, rights and creation and whether it's a book or a website or a painting or something. I mean, there, there's opportunities for every sector of the creative economy to get together and work together. So Frankfurt wants to showcase that. And I think also it shows publishers that, you know, there's a lot more out there than just, you know, ink on a paper. Right. So, um, we always hear about deals and deal making at the fair, but uh, this year we're getting a little bit of buzz in advance of the fair. Sounds like people are already revving up there. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. You know, Frankfurt is at its core a rights fair. I talk mostly about the professional program because that's my little piece of it. Uh, our rights reporter, Rachel Deal, covers uh, the, the deals at Frankfurt Book Fair. Uh, quite closely, but it is absolutely, it used to be you would go and bring all of your big books to Frankfurt and you'd make your sales there. And it was one of the two big times a year that you made, you know, big announcements about acquisitions. In past, maybe over the last decade, that slowed down somewhat, but that's sort of come running, sort of roaring back to life. Uh, they've, the literary center, the literary arts center, the lit ag, they call it, where the agents hang out has been sold out record wow. numbers for the past two years. Hmm. And they're finding that agents are doing a great volume of deals. If they are not the huge blockbuster deals of the past, who used to get these massive seven figure deals with regularity. Um, but on that score too, we are seeing more seven figure deals comes back, come back, excuse me, uh, especially as you know, the major publishers become more hits driven. So you're seeing where you would see uh, more advances, paid out in the past. Now you're seeing more deals being made, but higher advances going to the top of the ladder. And, you know, just this week, we learned that there were two pre-Frankfurt deals, books that are obviously going to be on sale for other foreign rights while they're in Frankfurt. One was, I think, an $850,000 deal uh, for an author who I believe his name was Jin Phillips, and the book is called Beautiful Things, and another book called Chalkman by a British author, uh, Kaz Tudor. Uh, pretty major deals ahead of the fair. And when you start seeing big deals ahead of the fair, you start to get a sense that you might get some big deals at the fair this year too. It's it's a harbinger of things to come. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. So um, the idea is that the deals that were, that are being announced now are just sort of part of the package that these same books are going to be marketed there to other countries for other rights. Sure, exactly. It's, um, you know, all depending on some of these books. I, I didn't see the details of a lot of these, whether they were world rights or whatever. But, you know, whenever usually the activity that starts and picks up at the Frankfurt Book Fair, it usually it starts a week or two, three weeks ahead of time, uh, just sort of, you know, seeding a little buzz uh, like we do with our Frankfurt bookcase that, that Rachel puts together, seeding a little buzz for the kinds of things that a foreign publisher might come and look for. Well, it sounds very exciting uh, and uh, like there's a lot to look forward to. Always a good time in Frankfurt, for sure. Well, thanks so much, Andrew. It's always great to have you on the show. My pleasure, as always. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Belle Boggs, the author of The Art of Waiting, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another fascinating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 